The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Luke in chapter 13 and verses 34 and 35. Verses 34 and 35 in the 13th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you, desolate, and verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. These undoubtedly are the saddest words that were ever spoken by our blessed Lord and Savior. They are his lament over the city of Jerusalem, over its people, its common people, who cried away with him, crucify him, and desired that a robber called Barabbas should be set free to them instead of the Lord. They are spoken with respect to all the great religious leaders and rulers, the Pharisees and scribes, the Sadducees, the doctors of the law, the Herodians, and all who are in positions and places of authority and power. Our Lord here expresses this lament with regard to the city. You remember how he came to do so. We were considering it partly last Sunday evening. You remember that the Pharisees came unto him saying, Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he replied saying, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out devils and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. You remember we saw that he there had been prophesying that his death was to take place there in Jerusalem. Not in Herod's territory, there was no danger of that. He knew that he was to be tried and condemned in Jerusalem and then crucified outside the city wall. And having that in his mind, he goes on to utter this lament, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. In other words, what our Lord is doing here is to deal with this whole question of the attitude of men and women towards himself. If you like, we can say that in these verses he is summing up his own mission. The purpose of his coming into this world. He is reminding them of what the mission was, the reason, the purpose for his coming. And he also reminds them of the reception which he received. Now in the Gospel of John, you'll find all that in the introduction. John puts it into the prologue. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Now our Lord is saying that very thing here, and putting it in terms of his rejection in this way, especially by the citizens of Jerusalem and by the leaders especially of the people. Therefore, it is a very convenient way of considering together what the gospel of Jesus Christ really is and what it has to say. Our Lord, you will notice, represents it here as an offer. 
He says that he has come into the world to confront men and women with a choice. How often would I have gathered, but you would not. He stands before them, he says, as one who has come on a mission, and it's, uh, he's offering them something. And the whole question is, what are they doing with, what are they making of the offer? He knows full well at this stage in his ministry that he is to be rejected by these people in Jerusalem. Now, that, my dear friends, is precisely the position still. This is the very business and, and purpose of the preaching of the Christian gospel. It is to confront men and women with this offer, with this choice. Every preaching of the gospel worthy of the name does that. It is to hold Jesus Christ before men and women and his offer and to confront them with a choice. That's the gospel. That's the message of the gospel. That is Christian preaching. Nothing else. This is, we are ambassadors for Christ. And we plead with you in God's stead and in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Now, our Lord makes that very plain here. This is his own summary of his mission, of his purpose in coming into the world. That's what he's come to do. And he makes another thing equally plain and clear, doesn't he? That there are only two possible attitudes towards this. One is to accept. The other is to refuse. There is no other possibility at all. There is no such thing as neutrality. Not to accept an offer is to refuse the offer. There is no middle position between those two. You cannot think of it. It's quite inconceivable. Confronted by an offer like this, I say we are left in one of these two positions. Either we have gladly received it or we have spurned it, we have rejected it. He makes that, I say, equally plain and clear. And it is my business to remind you this evening that the position is still the same. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is here making this self-same offer. And every one of us in this congregation has either accepted it or else we have rejected it. And every one of us is in one or the other of those two positions. Now the question is, had we realized that? Because I say again, not to accept is to refuse. Ah, but you say, I've never thought of it very well. You haven't accepted it. It is one or the other of these two. I wonder whether we realize further what all that means and what all that involves. Well, thank God our Lord himself shows us here very plainly what it means. He analyzes and shows the terrible truth about unbelief. He does it in terms primarily of these people of Jerusalem, but as I say, what he says about them is equally true of all others. They're just a glaring example, the most striking illustration of all. But what was true of them is equally true of all others who do not believe in him. Here then I say we have our Lord's own analysis of unbelief. He tells us very plainly and clearly the truth about anybody tonight who is not a Christian, who has heard this gospel but who doesn't believe it. And it is, I say, because it is such a solemn and a terrible, such a tragic thing that I am holding it before you. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Do you hear the tragedy in those words? Can you hear this note of lament? Can you get this accent in the very utterance of the Son of God? This is to him the final tragedy. There's nothing worse than this, nothing more terrible than this. 
that these people of Jerusalem amongst whom he'd appeared and to whom he made this wonderful offer, that they should have rejected him. And he would not. It's the final tragedy. But not only of them, but I say of all, in all ages, at all times, and in all places, who having been confronted by him and the offer of his gospel, reject it and refuse it and won't have it. Well now then, let's follow his analysis. The first matter, surely, that should engage our attention is this. Why do they refuse him? And ye would not. Why, why did they treat him thus? Well, he says, the answer is, this is an old story. There's nothing new about this, he says. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets, you've always done that, and always have stoned them that are sent unto you. That's been your long and sad story. In other words, he's giving there a summary of the history of the Old Testament. You had another more extended summary of it in that portion of the speech of Stephen at his trial, which I read at the beginning out of the seventh chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. That's the point that Stephen was making from beginning to end. He says, you know, in arresting me and threatening to kill me, you're only doing what you've done recently to the Son of God, but you're, f you're simply repeating and reenacting what our forefathers have always done. They did it with Moses. They've done it with all the prophets. That's the story. Stiff-necked, resisting the Holy Ghost. That's always been our history, says Stephen to his fellow countrymen. And our Lord reminds them of the same thing here. He says, you've always done that. You've killed your prophets. You've stoned them that have been sent to you by God. You're just keeping up the reputation which, uh, as a race and a people, you have gained throughout the centuries. That was the story, alas, of the children of Israel. And here he's reminding them of the kind of coping stone of this terrible building that they've erected. They're now going to reject and crucify their own Messiah, the very Son of God. They've murdered his servants throughout the centuries, one after another. They're now going to murder the Son. But let us not fail to observe this, my dear friends. This is the story of the whole of the human race. This is the story of men. You see, the children of Israel are just a great object lesson. But what is true of them is still more true of the remainder of mankind. What is the story of the human race? Isn't it this? God making men, putting him into a position of perfection in a place called paradise. And what does man do? Turns his back on God. Rebels against God. Rejects God. Feels he can get on without God. The God who blessed him. Showered his blessings upon him. Rejects all his overtures. That's what the human race has been doing ever since it fell. That's the position tonight of any man who doesn't believe in God and who isn't a Christian. It's just this same process of rejecting God and saying no to his, all his gracious offers and invitations. Why does mankind behave like this? Well, our Lord tells us the answer in terms of these people in Jerusalem. It's true of us all by nature. He says the reason is you would not. What he means is this, you see. That the trouble is down in the realm of the will and in the realm of the heart. You would not. You refused deliberately, obstinately. In other words, the point I'm making is this, that the essential cause of this trouble is not a matter which is intellectual primarily. It's not a matter of the mind. It's much deeper than that. Oh, I know that men and women try to say that their rejection of Christianity is entirely in terms of their minds and their intellects. I'm constantly referring to this and showing how utterly ridiculous it is. We prove that very simply like this. That if you could establish the case or the fact that any man who's a Christian 
He is therefore uh, of necessity uh, a man who has no intellect or no mind and cannot think. Well, then you'd have a case for your argument. But the simple fact is that throughout the centuries there have been men of great intellect and vital ability who have believed the gospel. There have been men with equal intellect who have rejected it. It isn't a matter of intellect. So don't run away with the notion that you're not a Christian simply because you've got a great brain. Infinitely bigger brains than yours have been Christians. The trouble isn't in your head, it's in your heart. That's the great message of the Bible. He would not. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews calls it an evil heart of unbelief. Stephen made the same point. He said, you stiff-necked. That's your trouble. It isn't in your head, it's in your neck. And that's another way of saying it's in your heart. Stubborn, stiff-necked. It's in the will, it's in the sensibilities. It's an attitude. No, no, it's not a purely intellectual matter. It's much deeper. It's much more fundamental. Did you notice how we read about those men that they gnashed with their teeth against Stephen? Do you remember how they treated the Son of God? They cried in fury, away with him, crucify him. And though he was there expiring on a cross, they passed in front of him. And they mocked him and they jeered at him. Look at their bitterness. Is that the calm, rational intellectualist attitude of the scientists? Of course it isn't. They hated him. Evil heart of unbelief, stiff-necked. He would not. Why wouldn't they? What's the cause of this? Well, again, the Bible is full of expositions of this everywhere. My dear friends, whether we like it or not, the fact of the matter is that every one of us, as we are by nature, has a natural antagonism towards God. The Apostle Paul has put that plainly, as everybody who attends here on a Friday night knows full well in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. The carnal mind is enmity against God. He is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Enmity against God. Oh, but you say, I've always believed in God. You've never believed in God. You've believed in something that you call God. But that isn't God. The natural mind, the carnal mind, is enmity against God. Of course it is. How ready people are to believe that there isn't a God. How ready to believe anybody who writes a newspaper article or says something on the television screen or on the broadcast. Oh, they're ready to believe it. Why? Well, there's a natural antagonism to God, feeling he's against us. They're trying to get rid of God. They hate him. Not intellectual at all. It's this antagonism, this bitter hatred, this feeling that God's against us. And we want to emancipate ourselves from that. There's nothing new in it, you know. This isn't 20th century. Men's always been like that. The fool hath said in his heart centuries ago, before Christ, there is no God. Of course, that's men in sin. Natural intent. He will not. He would not. Well, why then? Well, you see, another reason and a cause for the first, in a sense, is this. It's, it's nothing but pride. You notice how our Lord repeats this name, Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Why does he repeat it? Well, it's for emphasis, of course. The trouble with them was, you see, that they were proud of the fact that they were the people of Jerusalem. You read your Old Testament, you'll always find it. They were proud of it. We are Jerusalem, we are God's people. That was their tragedy. They felt, in other words, that all was well with them. They were complacent. And it was because of that, whenever a prophet came along, and even had uh, the temerity to suggest that there was something wrong with them and that they needed to repent, they were furious. You remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist was a stern preacher of repentance. And John knew his audience very well. He looked at them and he said, Now begin not to say among yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. 
He knew that that is what they'd say. They'd say, why are you preaching like that to us? Don't you know that we are Abram's children? Why, said John, God could make of these stones, raise up of these stones, children unto Abraham. You don't get out of it like that, says John. But he says, I know that's what you're saying. We are Abram's children. We are the Jews. We are all right. Of course, these Gentiles, they're dogs. They're irreligious. They don't know you. They haven't got your oracles. Oh, they're damned, of course. But we, Jerusalem, we are the children of God, the children of Abraham. Indeed, they did exactly the same with our Lord. He was preaching to them on one occasion, and they seemed to be believing his message, and he said, Now, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Instead of praising God for that, they stood back on their dignity and said, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any men. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? He said, You know you're insulting us. What are you offering us freedom for? We are Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any men. They forgot all about the captivity of Egypt and of Babylon. Mad, proud, filled with a sense of their own importance, complacent. They reject this message. That's why they wouldn't listen to the Son of God. They didn't need his salvation. They're Abraham's seed. We belong to Jerusalem. The chosen people, city of God, we need nothing. Who are you? Good people resent this gospel of salvation as much as bad people. Indeed, I've got authority for saying they do some more. Because our Lord says towards the end of his ministry... He says, the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. John came unto you in the way of repentance, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him, and ye repented not afterwards when ye had seen it. A man says, why do you preach like that to me? I've always been brought up in a religious home. I've always been brought up in the realm of the church. I've always lived a good life. I've never done any harm. I've never got drunk. I've never committed adultery. I've never done... I'm a, what, what are you saying that I need to repent for? And so Jerusalem feels that she is all right. Consumed with her own pride and a spirit of self-satisfaction. When he comes and offers salvation, she doesn't want it. She rejects it with scorn. He would not. In other words, the trouble is, you see, as our Lord is here indicating, that these people always resent the message of the prophet, which killeth the prophets and stoneth them that are sent unto thee. Why? Well, because of what they say. And what they say is this. They come with a message of condemnation of sin. There were other prophets. They were called false prophets. What did they come saying? Ah, oh, they came saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They came healing the affliction of the hurt of the daughter of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The false prophet is always a very nice man. Always preaches a beautiful gospel. Never makes you feel uncomfortable at all. He says it's all right. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And he was always very popular. But not so the true prophet. The true prophet was stoned, he was killed. Why? Well, because he came and condemned the life, the sinful life of the nation and the people. He called them to repentance. John the Baptist was the last of that mighty succession. And what was his message? Well, he preached a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. He says, come along. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Repent. Flee from the wrath to come, said John. Here's the last of the prophets, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And the Lord came himself and did exactly the same thing. It was a message of condemnation of sin. It was a call to repentance. It was an exhortation to a righteousness and holy life and living. You remember the deputations were sent to John one after another. What should we do? John gave them the answer, exact that 
Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And he said, If any man have two coats, let him impart to him that hath none, and any man hath meat, let him do likewise. And the soldiers came, saying, What shall we do? He said, Do violence to no men, and be content with your wages. Righteousness, holy living, truth before God. That's the message. And, of course, our Lord preached the same message. Read his Sermon on the Mount. There it is. He describes the character of the citizen of the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. There it is. And then he takes them point by point through the law. Love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. Don't think that you're guiltless because you've never committed an act of adultery. If you've done it in your heart, you're guilty. You remember the teaching. Well, it was because he preached like that. He preached this prophetic message. He denounced the sin of the nation. He exposed it. The Pharisees and scribes felt uncomfortable. They felt he was convicting them. Who is this fellow, they say? Who is this man who arrogates all this to himself? And they hated him with a bitter hatred and intensity. And it ended in their crucifying him and utterly rejecting him. And he would not. Why not? Well, because you don't like the truth of God. It disturbs you. It makes you feel miserable. It makes you feel unhappy. You say, I don't want to listen to that sort of stuff. Death and judgment. Ah, I'm not interested. I want something to comfort me. But here you see the Son of God preach this prophetic message as all the prophets and all who had been sent by God had done before him. And they didn't like it. They hated him. The bitterness and the antagonism came out. My dear friends, as you meditate about the cross of Jesus Christ during this coming week, try to explain that. You may say to yourself, what a terrible thing to do. If I'd been in Jerusalem, I wouldn't have done that. Well, you know, our Lord dealt with that very argument. He exposed it to the very depths in, you'll find it in the 23rd chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Let me just read it to you. To these words of our Lord. He said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He says, You're like whited sepulchres. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous. And say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore be ye witnesses unto yourselves that you are the children of the prophets, the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? What's he mean? He means this. He says, you know, you say, if we'd been alive in the days of our fathers, we would never have crucified the prophets. He says, you would, and I'll prove to you. How you would have done so. You're now plotting my death. And I'm simply saying what they said. You're doing exactly to me what your fathers did to them. You're praising the prophets. If you'd been alive then you'd have hated them. Even as you're hating me now, that is the position. And it is still the position. You think of this holy week so-called, and you say, what could have overcome those people that they should have crucified this blessed Jesus, this beautiful character? My friend, if you don't believe in him, you know you would have done exactly the same if you'd been there. By not believing on him, you're doing it now. The human heart remains the same. And Jesus Christ is rejected tonight as he was rejected here in the days of his flesh. Well, that's the first thing. That's the reason why they rejected him, why they refused him. But oh, let us listen as he tries to help us. By reminding us of what it is we refuse when we do refuse. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings? And ye would not. Oh, this is the tragedy. They didn't realize this. This is the most tragic part of the whole trouble. 
Why did they reject him? Well, because they didn't realize who he was. How often would I have gathered thy children together? Who is this that speaks like this? Who is this who is big enough to take under his wings the city of Jerusalem and all its peoples? Who is this? If they'd only realized who he was, they would never have refused him. They never realized he was the Son of God. They never realized that he was the Messiah, that he was not a prophet only, but the Son, God, sending his only Son into the world. They didn't realize that he was God incarnate. I... And it is still because men and women who don't realize who he is that they treat him as they do. But listen to what he tells us that he offers. What does he offer? Well, he offers protection. And never did even the Son of God use a more beautiful illustration. As a hen doth gather her brood under her, under her wings, Oh, how often would I have gathered you like that? What is he offering? Well, there it is in a picture. He's offering protection. He's offering salvation. Do you see that hen and the little chickens? There they are, dancing, prancing, round about. Suddenly there comes a cat or a dog or some predatory animal. And in their terror and alarm, they don't know what to do. They run to their mother and she covers them with her wings and they're safe. He says he's come into the world to do something like that for mankind. To protect, to save. In what senses? Well, there are two main senses here. You know, he was telling these people that uh, he had come to protect and to save Jerusalem even in a temporal and in a physical sense. You read the 21st chapter of this gospel according to St. Luke. Or read the 24th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, or the 13th chapter of Mark's Gospel, and you will find that in each one of them our Lord predicts and prophesies the coming destruction of Jerusalem. It actually didn't happen until A.D. 70, some 27 years after he was speaking these words. But there and here also he looks forward to the coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And he says, do you know, if you'd only believed in me and accepted my message and protection, your city would not be destroyed. Why, what's he mean? He means this. There was only one reason, finally, for the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. It wasn't the Roman armies. They actually did the job. But that's not the reason. Why was the Jerusalem sacked and destroyed in AD 70? I can tell you, it was God punishing the city. As God had allowed them to suffer in Egypt and as God had sent them to the captivity of Babylon, it was God who raised up the Chaldean army which sacked the city of Jerusalem then. The same God was going to do it again. Why? Well, because his people had apostatized. Because they turned their backs upon him. Because they groveled in sin. And had rejected him and his rule over them. And here our Lord is telling them that. Look here, he says, you don't know it. Jerusalem, you're proud of yourself. The great city of God standing there on the top of that great crag. You say you're impregnable and you point to your buildings. It's all going to be raised to the ground. It need never have happened. If only you'd accepted me as the Son of God and your Messiah and your Savior. I would have saved you from the destruction of your city and of your temple. But he would not. Yes, it's true in a temporal sense, but of course the main thing is the spiritual sense. And his message to us tonight is this spiritual message. Here is the Son of God standing and speaking to you this evening and saying, Friend, you can be rescued. You can be saved. You can be protected to all eternity. Come unto me. What is he talking about? Well, it is just his pictorial way of reminding us of the coming judgment of God. We are all of us under God.
God is there in his heavens and we are upon earth. And every one of us is responsible to God and accountable to God. And as certainly as we are in this chapel at this minute, every one of us will have to stand in the presence of that holy God at the dread day of judgment. And what will he demand of us? Well, he's made it so plain. I beseech you, read your Ten Commandments. Read your moral law. Read the message of this great succession of prophets to whom Christ refers. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Read the epistles. Read the book of Acts and its speeches. And you'll find there's one great recurring message that man is under God and will have to meet him and stand before him and give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. And you and I will be there. And what he came into the world to do was to offer us safety and protection. When the blasts of the law are booming, reminding us that there is only one God and no other, that we must worship him and love him with all our hearts and mind and soul and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. When the stern demands of the law will be coming and we will be asked, what's your answer? Don't you see the need of protection and of safety? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings. Do you know, my dear friends, the Son of God came into the world to save? He said, the Son of Men is come to seek and to save that which is lost. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. He will otherwise but he sent his son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what he's come to do, to spread his wings, to shield us and to protect us so that we can't be seen. He says, that's what I've come to do. That's what he's saying here. How does he do this? What does he mean by his analogy? Well, here's the message of Good Friday. As the wings of that hen stand between those little chicks and everything that is threatening to kill them and to destroy them, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, stands between all who believe in him and the law and the wrath and the punishment of God upon men's sins and unrighteousness. What was he doing on the cross on Calvary's hill? Do you know the answer? Spreading his wings. Giving us a place to go and hide. So that when the law shouts, he answers. He did answer. He stood between us and everything that threatens us. And what threatens us is the law and the justice and the righteousness and the holiness of God. We've sinned and we deserve punishment and hell. He stands between us. He covers us. He's covered our sins by taking them upon himself and dying for them. That's what was happening on Calvary's cross. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was receiving your punishment and mine. That's what was happening. He stood there and he received it all. And not only that, he offers to cover you with the cloak and the robe of his own spotless righteousness. He lived a perfect and a holy life. He never broke a single one of God's laws. He has satisfied God and the demands of God's holy law. And you know, he offers to cover you with that. So that when the law comes and says, what have you done about this? You point to him and you say, he's done it. 
And God looks upon all who believe in Christ. And he sees not us and our miserable failure and sin and shame. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, Count Zinzendorf had seen this very clearly when he sang, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty is my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds, in this arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Oh, my friend, do you realize what the Son of God offers you? You see, men rejected him because they didn't realize who he was, and they didn't realize what he was offering and what they were refusing. Do you realize it? That if you don't believe in him, you are refusing to be covered from law, from wrath, from death, from the grave, from everything that will destroy you. To be covered by Jesus' blood and righteousness and to be reconciled to God. That is what he offered. And that brings me to his last word, which is this. You see the sequence? Why men refuse? What they refuse? The consequences of refusing? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And verily I say unto you, Ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Oh, it was because Jerusalem had never realized the consequences of the, of the rejection that she was guilty of the rejection. What are the consequences? I merely mention them. Behold, your house is left unto you. Desolate. What's he mean? Well, primarily this is a reference to the temple, the house, that they boasted of so much, and which they believed was going to save them. The house, the temple. And what he's telling them is this. He says, you know, that house in Jerusalem, that temple is nothing without me. There's no value in the house itself. God dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as Stephen said to his accusers. Don't rely upon the temple, upon the house. It's God's house. If God goes, it's nothing but a derelict building. Your house is left to you, desolate, derelict, useless. And what he's telling them here is this. He says, if you persist in rejecting me, I'll tell you what's going to happen to you. I shall leave you to yourselves, I'll leave your house to yourself, and it'll become an empty shell. And not only that, it's going to be destroyed, it's going to be raised to the ground. Your house is left to you, desolate. You're rejecting me and relying upon the temple of God. You say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It can't help you. When I go out, it's a slum, it's derelict, it's desolate, and it'll be destroyed, flattened. You'll have nothing. I leave you desolate. What a terrible thing. Here were people who rejected the Son of God and his offer because they were relying upon their religion, upon their offerings and sacrifices, upon their religiosity, upon all their goodness and morality, and all they were doing in the temple. He says it will be useless, desolate. And you know, my, my friend, this is the terrible thing for us to realize this evening. Anybody who rejects Jesus Christ and his offer always does so for some reason. I wonder what your reason is. 
Are you rejecting him because of some pleasure that you're holding on to? Something in the world that you like very much and you say you're not going to give it up? All right, it may be that. What else? Well, there are others who hold on to their morality. They say, I don't want your Christ and your atonement and your death. I'm all right as I am. Look at my life. Others are relying upon their religion. They say, we've always been brought up to it, and I'm a church member, and I don't see that I need to be born again and believe that Christ died for me. Religion, as these Jews did. Well, all I've got to tell you is what the Son of God says to such people. He says, all right. If you are turning your backs upon me and refusing me and my gracious offer because of those things, I will leave you to yourselves and those things. All right, go on. Your house is left to you. Go on with your pleasure. Go on with your religion. Go on with your morality. Go on with your good works. Go on with whatever it is that makes you reject the Son of God. Go on with it. Carry on. And when illness suddenly overtakes you, all right, go on. Carry on with your pleasure. Go on. Have a good time when you get the verdict that you've got a bronchial carcinoma or a growth somewhere else that's going to kill you. Go on. Carry on with your pleasure. Rely upon your morality. Go on with your religiosity. Yeah, I leave it to you. Your house is left to you. But will it be of any help to you? Will it be of any value to you? Will you be able to be resting upon it? What's the value of your jazz and your drink and your sex when you lost your health? Or when someone dearer than life to you is dying at your side? Or when you're lying on your own deathbed. Or when you'll stand in the day of judgment. What will be the value of your house to you? Whatever your house is, get on with it. And you'll find that it's a shambles. It's a desolation. It's a derelict building. It'll collapse round about your ears. You'll have nothing. It matters not at all what we put in the place of the Son of God. I can't imagine anything more terrible than this, than to be left with it, dying with beer or drink and all this that they boast so much about and pray so much on your wireless and television as if it was the most marvelous thing in the world, dying with that or with sex. Your house is left to you. Desolate. Collapsing, disappearing, nothing left. Oh, my dear friend, I beseech you. Realize the consequence of rejecting this offer of the Son of God. It just means, you know, that you'll go out of this life into eternity exactly as you are now. Have you got anything you can rely on when you come to die? Have you got anything to say when you stand before God? What are you going to rely on? If you're relying on these things, you'll have nothing desolate. And still more terribly, he says, Ye shall not see me until the time come when he shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. But it will be too late then. Every eye shall see him, yea, and they that pierced him. But it will be too late. Your fate and mine is decided in this world, but this Christ whom we reject, he remains. He's in glory, he'll come back, and every eye shall see him. Yea, and they which pierced him, they'll see then that he is the Lord of glory, but it'll be damnation to them. So you see, our blessed Lord and Savior looks upon us this night and warns us and pleads with us. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings? Realize who he is. 
Realize why he came into the world. Realize what he offers you. The shadow of his wings. Safety in life, in death, throughout eternity. Realize the consequences of refusing such a gracious offer. Offered at the cost of his life his very blood. And realizing it, take immediately a stand with Charles Wesley and say, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. I want to be covered. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, I'm getting older, health is going. I've got to die, dear ones are going, calamities. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me. Oh, my Savior, hide, till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven, guide, oh, receive my soul at last. Or if you prefer it, say it with Augustus Top Lady, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee, hide! Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and pure, while I draw this fleeting breath when mine eyes shall close in death. When I soar through tracks unknown, leave my friends and loved ones and die and am going in that unknown direction. When I soar through tracks unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Oh, fly to him. Get under the shadow of his wings. Fly, he offers protection still. It's not too late. See the hardness of your heart that has made you refuse him until this night. See what you are refusing. See the terrible, awful, tragic consequences of doing so. And fly to him. Be covered. Be made safe. Amen.